0: We have got a bunch of stuff up on the board here for you. Uh, The only thing active right now is the third iTunes quiz which is up and available through the rest of the week, so through the weekend. And that covers the images from October the 4th through November the 7th. And then there'll be one more iTunes quiz probably due around the time of the final exam that will cover the pictures from the 8th of November through the end. And that will be the last last of those. Quiz 6 is uh, we will be available starting this, uh, starting on Friday. I'll probably finish chapter 14. We'll probably get through the rest of chapter 14 today. There isn't a whole lot, whole lot left. And then that'll be available Friday through the weekend. One thing I didn't put up and I realized, I gave you the sheet, but I didn't give you the reminder of it, is that if you're doing the extra credit that I gave you for creating exam questions, one from each of the three chapters, 13, what did I say, 13, 14, and 15, that's due next week. So I need those in by Wednesday of next week. So I'll take those. Um, Article review, also due Wednesday of next week, the third article review. And then homework seven I gave out last time, due Friday. And then exam four, scheduled for the 24th of November. We'll probably be through the material before that. Hopefully, I could probably push it and do it Wednesday before then. But I don't really want to push it just in case anything comes up. And I don't like to give an exam on Friday with lab. So I'm leaning towards that, but we'll probably be well into chapter 16 by the time we get we get to the we actually get to the exam. And then that is Thanksgiving week, the 26th. We will meet on Wednesday. I will not, there'll be no exam. I won't push the exam off till then or anything. There's no way I would give an exam the day before Thanksgiving, because I know that attendance will be a little lower than, than normal. So that's what's scheduled. And once we come back, we have the solar observation project will be coming up due. Uh, right, after, right after the break. Yes, ma'am. I didn't actually look through it too much. Do mm-hmm. you want one question for each chapter or just one question? You can, you can get you two points for each question you give me. One from chapter 13, one from 14, and one from 15. So you gotta do, if you want to just do one question, you can do one from one of the chapters. If you want to do all three, I need one from each different chapter. So don't do three from the first chapter. You only get two points. So if you want all six, you need, you need to do one from each chapter. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, picture of the day for today. Then, uh, this is the this is an artist's conception. This isn't uh, a, hasn't quite finished occurring yet, and we haven't quite gotten to this point. We're only about two hours away now. Uh, the, this is the uh, Philae spacecraft, uh, the lander from the Rosetta spacecraft that's going to be landing on the landing on the comet and it detached at our time 4 o'clock this morning so the lander separated and they got confirmation of that and it's on its descent and it's supposed to land shortly after 11 o'clock so about two hours from now it will actually land on the comet it is going to anchor itself in mainly because the comet is a tiny, low mass. It doesn't have a lot of gravity. So unlike landing on the moon, where you can set something on the moon and it's going to sit there, you know, it's not like that. It's this, uh, you know, any little uh, disturbances would could shake the comet. I mean, shake the comet off. You want to stand on this thing and go, get a running jump? You can launch yourself into space. You know, that's how low the gravity is. So what it's actually going to do is anchor, shoot anchors into the comet to kind of hold itself, grip on to the surface, and then it's going to be studying. All sorts of things, that's what all the different instruments are showing here. These are all the different instruments here, uh, including a drill, able to drill down a few inches into the comet so we're not just looking at the surface. Uh, We're going to actually look at material below. And there's different instrumentations here that we'll study, Um, drilling, it studies infrared, it studies the gas, composition, trying to study the composition. Uh, looking at it in radar, looking at invisible light, all sorts of things, so all different instruments there. And Rosetta has, this has been a long, long-going project, this was actually launched in, ni- uh, sorry, 19, 2004. So it's taken it ten years to make its trip to the comet and then land, so what's all coming, you know, coming today is looking forward to this landing and to what we get to really see of got some nice close-up pictures already, but to actually study the samples of the comet we'll probably start getting some you know initial results, and nice pictures coming back uh, probably even later today you'll be able to see some online. So if you don't have anything at 11 o'clock if you're not in a class or anything there's NASA TV is covering it so you should be able to probably pick that up The ESA is also broadcasting it on their website, so you'll be able to Hopefully, look at some things there to to follow to follow it, and hopefully we'll have some pictures to look at over the next over the next few days of this landing. So, one of the nice things about the course like this, you know, something I couldn't have taught last semester. It didn't happen. You happen to be taking it this time. You get you get to hear about it, and in future semesters we'll probably learn about the results of it. We'll have it. And then it will be this is something that happened a year, two years, five years, ten years ago as we talk about some of the others others now. So here, this is the one that's actually happening you know, while we're in class. It's making its slow descent to the surface of that comet. So. Questions? Yes, ma'am. How long did they expect to keep the lander there? The lander will, pr- will probably stay there permanently. How long it will be communicating, I'm trying to remember if it was a matter of a couple of days. I don't remember how much battery power it has to be able to to last. So it doesn't have giant solar panels to be able to collect lots of, you know, like our rovers on Mars, they got big solar panels to collect a lot of energy. This does not. So once it runs down on battery power. Is it running on the same power that the? the spacecraft? Or, you, mean, you mean the spacecraft that it left or? Oh, the thing going to. Pl- no, this is closer. I believe this is. Uh, it has battery power. Okay, so it's battery right. powered. So it's battery. It may have, and I didn't see anything listed on there. Did it say? I don't think it said anything about it. It might not have a lot of like solar cells, so it may not last a long, long time. This comet is closer to the Earth and to the Sun than you know, something further out. So it's not way out in the depths of the solar system either. It's a little closer to Earth. But yeah, it's just running on battery power, to my, to my knowledge, and that means it'll have, you know, whatever that is t- meant to last. Whereas the craft in orbit has solar cells, it can last, and actually its mission is scheduled to go through next year as the comet passes around close to the sun and then heads back out. It's going to be orbiting the comet the entire time. The lander is a much shorter duration mission. Anything else? Alrighty, well, we'll get back. A little further out of the solar system then, we'll head out a little ways out to our galaxy. Uh, Yeah, I know. Exit, go. There we go. Okay, so we were on here. We We had just finished up talking a little bit about spiral arms of the galaxy and how they form and how they maintain. And pretty much, I told you, I didn't know how they formed. And astronomers don't know why spiral arms form in the first place. How do we get spiral arms? other than we can do it through collisions. We can collide two galaxies together in a simulation, you know, make two computer galaxies, let them collide together and we can create spiral arms. Is there, are there enough galaxy collisions to account for all the spiral galaxies, or is there something else that helps to form spiral arms too, is a good, is a good question and something that astronomers are still studying. Once they form we had some better ideas as to why they form because it's like that traffic jam where everything is bunched up in all the material gets bunched up and that keeps the spiral arms where they, where they are. Once they start to form then we can have supernovae and more star formation and that can highlight and enhance those spiral arms because of the increased density of materials. But the other thing that we want to determine is the mass. How much, does our, how much matter is there in our Milky Way? Well. When we look at something like the sun, the sun takes about 200 million years to orbit around the center of our galaxy once. How fast it orbits only depends on how much matter is inside its orbit. So the sun orbits around here, how much matter is inside this sphere that the sun happens to be on, this imaginary sphere that the sun would be on, how much material is in there, that tells us how fast the sun will orbit. Anything out here doesn't matter for how fast it it orbits. There could be nothing out here. The sun would orbit at the same speed. There could be billions of solar masses out here spread around relatively uniformly. Nothing will happen. It won't change how fast the sun orbits. Only the material inside is important. And that allows us to then use the sun to determine a mass of the Milky Way, but only that material inside its orbit. So if we want to get a better mass, What do we do? We don't look at the sun. Let's look at a star that's a little bit further out. It's going to orbit differently, just like the planets orbit differently, right? Mercury goes a lot faster around the sun than Neptune. So, we want to look further and further and further out. Eventually, you get to the point where you found one of the most distant stars, or some of the most distant stars, where you're outside most of the material, where most of the material is inside you. Okay? So once we get to a star we find a couple, you know, the last remnants of stars way out at the edge that are orbiting in a gigantic orbit way around here. And if we can measure them, then we would get the total mass of the galaxy. So that's what astronomers have looked for. They measure what we call the rotation curve of the galaxy and all that is, is how fast it rotates compared to distance from the, s- from the galaxy, from the center. So you start in here and you measure how fast those stars are moving. You get out to the sun's distance and you continue outward. What, should e- what will eventually happen is that eventually you get to the point where like we are in the solar system. The sun has all the mass in the solar system. Nothing else. I mean, Jupiter's got a little tiny bit. It doesn't really matter. Once you get outside of the sun, you've got more than 99% of the mass in the solar system. So you've gotten to this point. When we look at the solar system, there's the sun. There is no matter here. There's only these scattered little tiny rocks further out. So that means that they rotate faster, the slower and slower, as you get further and further away from the sun. But what we find when we look at this, we should, when we get to the galaxy, it should do the same thing. But what we find instead, here's what we should find, this dotted line. Once you get outside all the mass, 15,000 parsecs, that's about how big the galaxy appears to be. Right? When we look at it, we measure how far away things are, that's about how big the galaxy appears to be. So what we expect is that once you get outside all that mass, inside it does some funny things because sometimes you get more mass inside, you add more mass and it changes the speed. But once you get outside all that material, it should just go, those most distant stars should just be orbiting slower and slower as you get further and further out. That's not what we see. What we actually see is the pink line. Now, the little bit of wiggles in here, I said that's not not unexpected. Sometimes you might get a little bit more matter as you move further out. You might get to a big chunk where there's lots of material in the galaxy. And that adds more matter as you get further out. You might get some sections where there's not much. And that'll cause some little variations here. But eventually, you get outside all of the material you see, and yet instead of decreasing in speed the stars are actually going faster and faster and faster. So those stars that are most distant are moving the fastest. Now that's not like saying that Pluto is orbiting around the Sun faster than Mercury. But the speed at which it's traveling, you know, how many miles per hour is it traveling is actually faster. These stars are actually traveling faster when you get further out. And that's telling us, now telling us one of two things, it's telling us either the galaxy has a lot of material out there beyond what we see as the edges. You know, we see our galaxy here with some nice spiral arms and you know, we're measuring out. We can see material out to there and that's it. But as we measure the little bits of gas and little bits of material that are further away, they're moving faster and faster. There must be a lot of material out here that we can't see. And that's what we call dark matter. It's dark matter because it's something we can't see at all. And that means we can't see it if we look at it in visible light. It's not emitting red light, blue light, green light. But it's also not emitting anything else. Because we'd be able to see it if it was just more hydrogen gas out there. Well, it would emit 21 centimeter radio radiation that we looked at before. It would emit radiation that we could detect in radio waves. If it was really, really hot gas, we could detect it because it would be emitting x-rays. So it's not that it's just dark. It's dark not just at visible light. It's dark at every single wavelength. It's essentially completely invisible to us. But there has to be a lot of matter. How much is a lot? Well, we see how many hundreds of billions of stars here. For every one of those we see, every star we see, every cluster we see, every nebula we see, we need about two to three of them that we can't see worth of matter. So for every single star we see in our galaxy, add two more stars just like that, turn their matter completely invisible, and put them outside the edge of our galaxy. That's what's needed to explain the motion that we're seeing. There's got to be a lot of material out there. It's either that, or the other possibility is that our understanding of gravity is wrong. Does gravity do something completely different when we're talking about these very big scales? it's another possibility. There could be some other theory of gravity that works like Einstein and like Newton on smaller scales but does something differently and explains why things would move faster. That is the other possibility. The commonly accepted one now is that there is dark matter out there, there is a lot of material out beyond the edge of the galaxy that we simply cannot see. And again, it's not just a little bit, it's two to three times. For everything we see, Again, every star we see, every cluster we see, everything we see, all the gas clouds we see in radio waves, all the x-rays material, for every single one of those that we see we need another two of them to three of them that that's worth a that matter that's invisible to us. So what is it going to be? Again, first line there is what I've kind of been going over. It's dark at every single wavelength. It means I can't put a radio telescope and point it at there and detect it. I'm not going to detect this dark matter in radio waves. So it has to be something very, very dark, very faint. So some of the other things that it can be, well, a couple of examples. How about black holes? Black holes, they got a lot of mass. They're invisible. right? You can't see a black hole unless material comes close to it and gets heated up. And if you're way out here and there's not a lot of other material around you, that would explain dark matter. But for you'd need so many black holes, because for every every star you see like the sun, you need a three solar mass black hole. Did could that many black holes have formed in the history of the galaxy? And models seem to think that this probably not a way, not a hasn't been time, not possible for that many of them to have been created. So we don't think it was that. That's the one. Our best option right now is these objects. Brown dwarfs, faint white dwarfs, and red dwarfs. Red dwarfs are very hard to see. They're faint stars. Remember, they're regular main sequence stars, but they're extremely faint. We can see them when they're close to us. In fact, a lot of the closest stars to us are red dwarf stars, which means there's probably a lot of them around. But we can't see them over great distances. So could there be a lot of them out here surrounding the galaxy? They'd be invisible to us just because, not because they're not there, not because they're not putting out light, but because they're putting out so little light. No. Take the, make it dark, but take that match and put it a hundred feet away, and then put it a thousand feet away, and then put a tenth up. It starts to get invisible. You're not going to be able to see it over a great enough distance. So that's a possibility. Similar things with brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are a little bit less massive, but even more. The thing is, for each of these, for each star like the Sun that we see, that means we need about 10, 20, 20 to 30 brown dwarfs for each star we see like the Sun. Red dwarfs would probably be about 5 to 10. About 5 to 10 more or so. Red dwarfs, you'd need lots of them for each one. It's not like black holes where you only need, you know, one to account for each. Here you need lots and lots of them. White dwarfs, There's certainly a possibility that this may account for some of this dark matter, but probably not enough to account for all of it. Other thing that astronomers and physicists come up with is all sorts of weird subatomic particles that have mass and that could be scattered around there. problem is without evidence for it, you know, it's a nice conjecture, but we need some kind of uh, test that we can do to say, well, maybe this works. Right now, this is our best option. It's that there's really lots and lots of these faint, faint objects out there. But it's not just a few of them. You're talking about dozens of them, typically, for every single star that we see in our galaxy. And for more massive stars, a star that we see that's ten times the mass of the sun, you need ten times more of what you're seeing. So that's a lot of material out there that we're trying to find. We looked at some of the star clusters. Some of them had... You know, a hundred solar masses or a thousand solar masses, ready to form lots of stars. We can measure them, we know that mass, that means there's got to be two or three times more for each of those that we see. It's a lot of material that we do not, we do not know exactly what it is right now and we only see its effects through gravity. So how can we detect it? Well, go back to Einstein and general relativity. General relativity makes that prediction that starlight will bend when it passes near the sun we talked about, but also when it passes near a massive object. So here's a star. If something passes very faint, essentially invisible to us, this is a really bright star off in the distance. This could be a brown dwarf, a black hole, a very faint white dwarf, far enough away that it's invisible to our detectors. It's not putting out enough light for us to be able to detect it, but passes directly in front of that star. It doesn't block it out. What it does is it actually magnifies it. It magnifies its brightness. Why does it do that? Well, gravity, light was going out in all directions here, but when you come close to a mass of objects, those bend. So here, at this point, the observer, instead of seeing just the light coming straight from the star, also gets this light bending around this way and bending around this way, that all comes to us. And we'll see multiple, you can sometimes see multiple images of the star. In this case you can see the star brightens. So when that happens to pass in front of it, there's before, during, and after. And that gives us a chance, you know, how, how often these occur and our measurements of how likelihood they are to occur gives us some idea And it says maybe it can account for half of the mass that we need. That still means we need at least one to two galaxy masses of our galaxy to be able to explain gravitationally what's happening, how our our stars are moving. The images on the right there are just one example of this that's been detected. There's the star that's being pointed out. Again, we're looking at very, very faint objects. There it is there. And there you can hopefully tell it's a little bit brighter here. This was from April. Seven months later it brightened up and then would immediately d- faint, get faint again. So what the rest of that material is is really a good, good, good guess, something we're still trying to figure out where the rest of the material is. We know that there's a lot of it. In fact, we know that there's a lot more than what, we're, what I'm telling you here when we get to the next chapter. We'll see even more, that there's a lot of what we call dark matter out there someplace. But really what it is, is a great question. Alright, last section of this chapter that I want to go through is the center of our looking at the center of our galaxy. I've already told you if you look you know, late summer, early fall, if you look out to the south, you're looking towards the center of our galaxy. You never know that because there's so much dust and gas there that the center of our galaxy doesn't stand out. It isn't incredibly bright. So here's a picture of it. This is invisible light here. There's the center of our galaxy. Doesn't look anything amazing. There's lots of other objects around it. There's a nebula there. There's some, just some brighter st- stars, uh, dense, denser clusters of stars there. Nothing specific visible, invisible light. What if we zoom in and look at the infrared? If we just take this little tiny square and look in the infrared, that lets us penetrate the dust a little bit better, but still Without the arrows, or thinking that it was centered, would you know where the center of the galaxy was? It wouldn't stand out to you. There's where the center of our galaxy is located. Even in the infrared, there's so much dust that the center of our galaxy is blocked out. Now it's still one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. So we put a radio telescope there, and you point a radio telescope at there, the radio waves get through, get out, and we detect a lot of energy from that. It's one of the brightest objects in the sky in radio waves. It's nothing in infrared, it's even less in visible light. There's nothing, nothing that is visible there. Now that doesn't just mean that it's a black hole. There's still, because it's emitting energy, there's still material around it. There's going to be lots of stars around it and lots of stars, lots of gas clouds that are around the black hole that would be visible. So it's not just that it's a a giant black hole so of course we're not going to see it. It's that there is so much dust between us and the center of the galaxy that it's completely invisible to us. So here's some zooming in trying to look at our galactic center a little bit better. This gets down to scales. This is about hundred parsecs, about 300 light years across. There's the center of our galaxy in the infrared. It does look a little bit brighter there than it does in the visible. We zoom in and look at radio waves. We get some very interesting structure to it here. We're getting to a smaller, uh, little bit smaller scale, about a quarter. And we zoom in. We get there's the center of our galaxy in radius. We also get this little tail kind of coming out from the galaxy, from the center of the galaxy. X-ray emissions. We get very strong emissions from the center. And as we go real down close, this is down to about, uh, that would be a little less than the distance between us and the nearest star. So in terms of looking at the size of the galaxy, we're really getting down to fine detail. You know, our, us and Alpha Centauri would be about that far apart. They would fit, you know, side to side within that image. And there we're actually starting to see, it almost looks like it's a little bit of spiral structure. You've got a couple different jets coming out, all sorts of interesting things going on when we're looking at the very highest resolution areas of the galactic center. So there's something interesting going on there. We can certainly detect it in radio waves, one of the brightest objects. We can detect some infrared. We can detect x-rays. It's really visible light that gets all blocked out for us. So what do we see? What do we have? Well, if you lived at the galactic center, you'd see lots and lots of stars in the sky. So not like walking out here at night. If the stellar density is a million times higher, then around where we are, you know, think about for every star you see, add a million more stars. So that star, that, so you imagine how bright the sky would be just with stars. You know, if you had a million stars for every star you see, it would be bright even. It would be bright, bright even during the day. So lots and lots of stars down there, not where they're spread out quite a ways here. We do have a big ring of gas around it that's orbiting. We have very strong magnetic fields. That's a big ring. That's, so that's large. That's at the bigger scales. That's 400 parsecs. That's a few hundred light years. We get down to a few parsecs. We actually do have a ring or disk of material. That would be an accretion disk around the black hole. Kind of jumping ahead and giving you the answer there. A strong, a strong x-ray source at the center. Lots of x-rays. In order to produce x-rays, we need a very high temperature. We saw x-rays when we talked about the sun and the corona, when it was millions of degrees. X-ray bursts came from the surface of a neutron star. We need things with lots and lots of energy. Well, we can also get x-rays and all of this from a black hole. Now, not from the black hole itself. Once you cross the event horizon, whatever size that is, depending on the black hole, you're done. Nothing gets out. Doesn't matter if it's x-rays or gamma rays or matter or anything, it can't get back out. However, around the black hole, so if this is our black hole, and you have this disk of material around it that's spiraling material in, this disk can be heated up to millions of degrees. And it can give off x-rays and gamma rays that we then detect. So that's where the energy is coming from, not from the black hole itself. the black hole sits there all by itself, we'd have no way of detecting it except through its gravity. But we can detect material as it moves into the black hole. So as stars and dust clouds and things are ripped apart, As they get closer and closer to the black hole it releases a lot of energy. And we can then detect. That energy is what we can detect and that's what we're detecting from the center of our galaxy. Center of our galaxy is a very quiet black hole. It's not emitting a lot of energy even though I see, I'll tell you about all these x-rays and radio waves that we're detecting from it. It's not very strong compared to the galaxies that we'll talk about in the next chapter. There are some where the black holes are currently really being fed. You're feeding it here, you're putting some material into it. There are some galaxies where lots and lots of material is there and they're much more energetic than our own, our own Milky Way. Let me see here. Alright, so what do we think this is? Well a gigantic black hole at the center of our galaxy. That causes everything that we see. And it's the disk around it that is emitting the radiation. The black hole itself, again, take that black hole, and put it out there, you know, a few light years away from us, and we wouldn't know the difference. It's there. It's be completely dark unless it happens to block out. You know, unless we see its gravitational effect someplace, we're not going to see it. It's only the material around it. The more material you put into that black hole, the hotter it, the hotter it gets, the higher temperatures it's going to reach, the more we're going to be able to see that. And that's the accretion disk. That's the material around the edge of the black hole. That's where we see all of the radiation coming from, the accretion disk around the edge. Once you get to the black hole itself, the material is just absorbed into the black hole. It gets a little bit larger. Its event horizon expands a little bit more every time it gobbles up some more material. At the center of our galaxy, it's about, I think I have 3.7 million solar masses. Thinking of what we were just talking about with dark matter, if we know there's a 3.7 million, 3.7 million suns, 3.7 million solar mass black hole at the center of our galaxy, then we need about two more of those. Not necessarily those, but that much material outside the edge of our galaxy that we don't see. So going back to what we were talking about with dark matter, because there's almost 4 million solar masses here, we need another, just because of that, we need 8 to 12 million solar masses outside. So there's another big chunk of dark matter that we can't, we have to be able to account for, that we still have to find material much further out. So in this case, that's our best estimate based on looking at the orbits of stars close to the center of our galaxy. And we can detect stars that are close to the center. Here's an example here. And I'm going to show you a video clip of this in just a minute. Uh, This is looking down very, very close. We were talking about parsec size. This is a 1 100th of a parsec. Uh, parsec is about three light years. So we're looking at, what, about 0.03 light years. About 2,000 astronomical units. We're talking sol- big solar system size, but we're not, we're not near to the other stars. We're talking you know, well outside our solar system, but this is you know much, much closer. And you can see all the stars. Look how dense that is by comparison. This one labeled SGR A star. SGR means Sagittarius. Constellation of Sagittarius happens to be where the center of our galaxy is located. And A star is the radio source that is detected there. So that's what we're looking at here. And this is the orbit of this star that's very close to the black hole. This star is labeled S2. And it's a star that's been studied. Again, here we're getting down to 1 one thousandth, So we're talking about hundreds of astronomical units. We're only about twice the size of the solar system now. So this is orbiting the center of our galaxy at distances which are, you know, very close to solar system sized. And if we look, we see what we may recognize from uh, Kepler's second law, way, way back, right? A line joining the planet and the sun sweeps out equal areas in equal times. Yeah, forget that. What it really means is that it moves faster when it's close. Right? So when we get close here, look at the timing here. Between 1994 and two years, it moved from here to here very slowly. In two years when you get close to this very strong radio source, 2001, 2003, it zipped a big chunk of the way around there in that two years. Whereas in two years when it's further away, it's still moving fast because there is a lot of material there, but not near as fast as it does there. Now what we look at when we fit it What astronomers will do, they'll make these measurements, then they'll find the best ellipse they can that fits all of the data points that they have, and figure out how much mass does that tell us must be here. And our best estimates say about 3.7 million solar masses are needed there in order to explain the orbit that we see. If there was a lot more, it would be moving faster here. If it was a lot less, it would be moving a lot slower, and the orbit would be different. So this comes back to Kepler's third law, being able to determine the masses. Once we determine that orbit, now we can determine the mass of what is being orbited. And we can determine the mass of this object and we saw how small this is, how small of an area. We're talking your know, solar system size. How else, other than a black hole, how else can we possibly put 3.7 million solar masses? You know, you'd have stars stacked up against each other. It wouldn't be something that would be would be stable. So oh, other way to get that Without having a black hole there. All right, that is that. I'm going to skip out of here for a second because I have a video clip to show you here. And let me pause this for. As you actually see the video there, it gives you a little bit more of an impact as to really what's happening when we look at these. Um, get this. What's really happening there? I mean, that thing is whipping around. This was this one is a little more leisurely. That one star was going down, coming real close to here, and turning around and coming right back out. So you're taking something like the sun or even bigger. It's going in one direction. In the matter of weeks to months, you flip it around and send it back out the other side. So extremely, uh, extreme amount of gravity has to be present there to be able to turn around that star in such a short period of time. So, that's the emphasis is that pro- we believe that in order to do this, we have to have a large black hole at the center. The estimates from all of the numbers that we've done have been about between 3 and 4 million solar masses. Best estimate right now, about 3.7 million, to really explain everything that we see close to the center of our galaxy. How are we doing? All right. So, questions? Yes, ma'am goes around it. Right. With, I guess, like the power of all of the debris and particles that are in that, mm-hmm. does it create like a vortex type of thing around it? A vortex? I mean, it has material swirling it in, yes. Like, yes, it would be. Like sw- you know, going up through? Not necessarily going up, but we do get material that does come out. So that vortex does actually shoot jets out. We'll see jets of material coming up when we talk about galaxies. So you can add, not all the material goes into the black hole either. Some of it comes, well this way I've drawn it, it comes straight out this way or straight back into the board. So there is material that swirls in and then instead of going into the black hole, material gets pushed outward. So not all of it goes into the black hole. It still gets heated up, gives off a lot of energy, but not all of it ends up in that black hole. We see lots of jets of material. We see that with black holes. Smaller ones, we see it with larger ones as, as well. So, all right, question, oh yes sir, sorry. If the black hole thing has a mass of about 3 solar mm-hmm. masses, why would like how big would its, like no escape zone we called it, like the point at which things would get sucked into it, shouldn't it be very big or is it just. It's big, going to be exposed? big, but remember how small it was relative to the sun. The sun was only a few kilometers for one solar mass. So, you know, maybe. Millions of, kilo- millions of kilometers. You, know, you might be getting out to astronomical unit size, a few astronomical units. You know, that would be 93 million miles would be the Earth's sun distance. But the sun is only a few kilometers, so if you're getting out, you're still going to have lots and lots of, you're not going to need it, it's not going to be that big. I mean, it's still going to be small compared to anything we're used to. Yeah. Yes, sir? Is it possible for a galaxy to exist without a black hole in the center? Very, I don't, I'm trying to think, there might be a couple cases where they have not been able to determine but for the vast majority there seems to be a black hole at the center. The very vast majority. As in like 99% plus of them. There might be a couple smaller galaxies, little galaxies, where there's just not enough density there. But typically when you get stars packed this close, eventually you know, maybe not it's the instant the galaxy forms, they're going to start to coalesce. Eventually they're going to start to, and once you form the black hole, then it's going to, it is slowly going to build on itself. It's not just, gonna remember, it's not going to suck everything in, but it is slowly going to gather more and more material as it collects material from around it. Yeah, give me one more and I'll get you. Does Go it ahead. mean that at like some point in the very, very distant future the black hole is sucking everything from the galaxy? No. Most of the material is too far away. So I mean, something like the sun is just orbiting around, it's not, it's never good, the, the galaxy's not good. Think of how big the event horizon is. For the sun it's three kilometers. So for something like millions of solar masses you could be talking millions of times bigger. But still millions of times of three kilometers you're still within the solar system. So it's only that material that's really really close to the galaxy center that's ever going to be gathered into this. It's not that it's just going to get bigger. Eventually it'll be just a dead black hole. You'll absorb all the material around it. Unless you put more material in there, the black hole has nothing to absorb, and it's going to sit there nice and quiet. It's not going to do anything. If you feed it again, send it some food, send it some stars and planets and gas and dust, then it gets active again. And then it starts to you know, give off energy. Yeah, question? Well, I remember the other day you said to get a black hole that big would have to be multiple black holes forming into one. Probably, probably is what happened when the galaxy, I mean, wouldn't it wouldn't have been a single star is what I meant, yeah. yeah. That at one time it was just a cluster of hypergiants in that area before they became black holes and formed the galaxy? It probably would have, as the galaxy was forming, there probably would have formed you know, clusters of stars there. And once you started getting so much material that dense, it would have formed a black hole and then it just would have built. So it would have probably started out as a very small, as a small black hole, but built up over, over time. So yeah, it wouldn't have been like a single star or anything that would have, would have done it. Good. Any other questions? Otherwise I'm going to jump on to 15 and get a start, get a little bit of a start on that. And at least do the introduction here. We've got a few minutes left here. Uh, so we're going to start there. 15, 14 was our galaxy. 15 goes out and looks at all the rest of the galaxies in the universe. So we're going to look at normal galaxies, galaxies which we consider our galaxy to be a normal galaxy. And we also see other objects that are active galaxies. These are the ones where you're feeding the black hole. You know, ours, even with all the energy it's putting out, is not a black hole that's being fed a significant amount of matter. It's relatively quiet. There are galaxy centers that by comparison are putting out a lot more energy. And we split them up into normal and active galaxies. Normal galaxies emit most of their light comes from stars. So when we look at a galaxy that's a normal galaxy, most of its light is starlight. When we look at an active galaxy, it's still emitting starlight. It's got stars there. But most of the energy, it's dominated by the energy that's being emitted around that black hole. So most of it is not starlight that we're seeing. Most of the energy that it's emitting is not. And active galaxies are probably about 30% of the galaxies. So it's not like they're rare either. They're relatively common. There are lots and lots of active galaxies. It's not like, well, here's 95% of the galaxies, and here's those few oddballs. There's lots and lots of active galaxies of different types that we'll be talking about over the coming, coming days. But I want to look at first and get a start on here is the different ways we classify galaxies. Now, we classified stars based on their spectra. What did their spectrum look like? And depending on the spectral lines that we saw, we classified them as O stars or B or A or F or G or K or M. We had those set of classifications. Originally, that's how stars were classified. It was just on how their spectra appeared. It had nothing to do with the star itself. We didn't really know anything else about it at the time, hundred and some years ago. We didn't really know what else was there. Now we know it's temperature, right? O stars are really hot, M stars are really cool. Well, galaxies are still at the early classification stage. We're classifying them by how they appear. And we have a couple different types. We have spiral galaxies. And here's a couple of examples of spiral galaxies. And then we divide those those galaxies into groups. So spirals are one of the five main groups that we'll look at but we subdivide spiral galaxies by the size of the the central bulge. So that spiral galaxies are called class S. Better watch out, that starts to make too much sense for all the classifications and things we've done so far, S for spiral galaxies. So it's an S and then we look at the size of the central bulge and those with the largest bulges where the most material around the bulge there, the yellowish area, a little bit less here and here, it's really only down at the very center. So big bulge, medium, and little tiny bulge. What we add is a little letter A, B, or C after it to tell us that. So an SA would have the largest bulge, SB in between, SC would be the smallest. So this would be largest and smallest. So in order to classify a spiral galaxy, we first of all have to look at the galaxy. We see that it has some kind of spiral structure. That's number one. That classifies it as an S-type galaxy. That it is a spiral galaxy. Then we subdivide those. We find that there's different groupings of the galaxies, depending on how big the bulge is. So the large bulge galaxies are type A. Medium or type B. Uh, very small bulge, almost nonexistent, are type C. So it's all classified by how they look. Doesn't necessarily have any other physical meaning yet, just as our original classification of the lines was just, again, how the spectral lines looked in stars. So in words here, SA has the largest bulge, SB in between, SC is the smallest. There also is a relationship between the spiral arms. But is it tightly bound spiral arms? Not quite as good. But typically, the SA galaxies, the spiral arms are bound a little bit closer together. So an SA galaxy might look something with spiral arms really close together, whereas an SC galaxy would be wide open. Spiral arms, arms sticking way out. Yeah. Our galaxy, I haven't, actually our galaxy is a spiral, but it's another type of spiral. So actually our galaxy, it's actually an SB in this, but there's also something else with it that we'll get to next time. So our galaxy on this schedule, if we stop right here, our galaxy would be an SB. It's kind of in between. It's not wide open arms, but it's not really, really tightly wound arms either. But the, the tightly bound arms, that's it doesn't fit quite as well. You can find some galaxies with a really large bulge with open arms, and you can find some with almost no bulge with very tightly. Run. So it doesn't work quite as good. The real classification is just on how big that bulge is. But everything else is much like our own galaxy. All of these galaxies have a disk. They have a central core, probably a massive black hole at the center. They have a halo, spherical halo, around them. They have a bulge, that's how we class subclassify them, and they have spiral arms. So they're much like all the components that we've already talked about in our own galaxy. The next one, and I'm not going to really get into it, is what we call a barred spiral. And I'll talk about this more on Wednesday, but a barred spiral is like a spiral galaxy, but instead of this, it has a bar going through the center, and then the spiral arms come from the end of the bar. That's what our galaxy is more like our galaxy is more like one of these barred spirals. Instead of the spiral arms coming, emanating right from the center, there's sort of a bar of material going through the center and the spiral arms come from the edge of that. That's more what our galaxy is like and that's where I'll pick up next time I actually show you some images of barred spirals. But I'll leave this up in case anyone wants to get that, but we're about out. So I will go ahead and stop there and we'll pick up on Wednesday, we'll go through the rest of spiral galaxies and then we will talk about the other Three types of, yeah, we'll talk about barred spirals and the other three types. Um, That should be about it.